0: Listening Dog Media. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Oh, Danielle, that... Oh my God, I think I'm in love.
1: Oh, it was a real honour to be asked to be on this because I thought, oh, someone's still interested in my (laughs) opinions. How to DJ. How
0: to DJ. DJ, (laughs) DJ. How to DJ. The more me I am, the better I am, the better connection I have. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How To DJ. A DJ lives in the moment, whether they're on the radio or at the club.
1: And then I saw the radio studio and I was like, this just makes sense.
0: To succeed as a DJ, you must create
1: your own identity. How To DJ.
0: A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I asked them to pick five questions from a box of 45.
1: You sit there sometimes and think, oh god i don't want to do tiktok you know like that
0: i'm here with me now a radio dj
1: it's really important for music fans to be behind the mic i think it's essential because you really care about not missing stuff a club dj so i thought i'll just start a club night i had no idea what i was doing and i just booked a few bands and just kind of worked it out a little bit and i struck really lucky a musician. So I used to just sit there, such an idiot. I used to sit there with like a lamp and a, you know, ma- big manuscript, just big romantic and write string sections until four in the morning. You're given that kind of flexibility to have an opinion on stuff. So that was nice. And she opened the door and she was wearing a full kimono, bright red afro. And I was like, oh my God. And he had to show me how to do it for the first half an hour. And he was like, press that one. Okay, do that one. Okay, that one does that one. I was like, oh, cool. Hello, Danielle Perry. Hi. <laughs> how are you doing?
0: I'm good, thanks. Uh, Danielle, uh, when did you first want to be a DJ?
1: Oh, man. I kind of fell into it by pure chance, really. My mum always worked for the local TV station, so I was always, like, pretending I was sick so I could go in with her and uh, sort of sit and watch. I, I just loved the sort of buzz of live. really enjoyed that. And um, I said, oh, I don't know what I want to do, mum. And she was like, I want to get in the media. And she said, well, write a letter. And back in those days, it literally was like typing out a letter, sending it in an envelope. And so I sent it to print, print media, to TV and to radio. The first people that got back were radio. Really worked my way up. I started doing the travel about six pounds a shift, you know, and did that. And then just gradually kind of never left, just worked my way up. And I fell in love with it, the romance of it, just the voice and no visuals. I don't know. That's changed, though.
0: (laughs) What I fell in love with, it's kind of similar, was with specifically the one-on-one nature of radio, you know, talking to one person.
1: Yeah, totally. That personability you've got and that relationship you have with people. And sometimes if you get a really nice message coming in saying, oh, I've been with you through, you know, XFM, Kerrang! days and now I've said it's like, oh my God, you've been choosing to listen to me <laughs> for that long. You know, I just, it's it's a complete honour, really.
0: Where was it? Where are you talking about?
1: That was on the South Coast. So I started off in Bournemouth at a station called 2CRFM. I think I've worked at about sixteen, seventeen different radio stations i've properly like zigzagged all the local ones used to drive the jeeps giving out the promotional mugs um did the football scores then did the weather then did the travel for way too long actually um and then just yeah just started getting my own show and then doing overnights which is killer especially you know, it was cds you couldn't leave the room and then the big break was kerrang up in birmingham so yeah it took me everywhere really
0: how did that happen then what did your letter to them say
1: that wasn't a letter. Weirdly, they got in touch with me, which was um really nice touch. They had two brothers called Cy, James and Hill. I don't know if you remember them.
0: Mm-hmm, I do.
1: They were working on the station with me down in Southampton. They went up to Kerrang to do the breakfast show and the guy there said... You need to have a female voice on the station. And they were really anti getting anyone just for giggles, you know, that sort of horrible cliche role of the the girl on breakfast that thankfully has now gone. But back in the day it was that and they were like, Oh, the only person we can think of that won't do that and won't laugh at us if they don't think I'm funny is Danielle Perry. And they just gave me a call and I kind of packed up everything, moved to Birmingham, didn't know anyone. <laughs> It was great. It was a great station to work for. They had budgets, had a lot of people, a lot of talent there. And it was just exciting. Everyone was really creative and it was ambitious, I think.
0: And was Kerrang! your kind of music?
1: Not straight off. It wouldn't be the first thing. But I learned a lot. You know, you have to go into these things quite open-minded. Now, when I do the Mercury's or anything like that, where you have to listen to so many genres, it's so important, isn't it? That you try and understand as many as you can and like really get into the culture of everything and yeah, be open-minded about it. Because often when you do explore, you always find something you love or your take on something that you really love. So yeah, I learned a lot actually over those years about that.
0: Yeah, I feel very lucky to do a day job where I get to play the music that I really love and I'm passionate about. But I have a huge amount of respect for DJs that can sell the music in a way that they love every single song that they're playing.
1: The good thing about Karang back then was it was so kind of dry and tongue-in-cheek I mean, I think on many occasions I was like, that's a new single. Wow, it's pretty out there for me. But you're given that kind of flexibility to have an opinion on stuff. So you didn't really have to be, yeah, I hate that. I I actually find that really difficult and I can't do that. So if I really hate a record, I just probably won't mention it. (laughs) Yeah. that's the way I've kind of dealt with it because it has been a stumbling block sometimes where I'm like oh man I never would have picked that but algorithms insist you know and you're like you have to try and keep your opinion but not slag off what other people really love <laughs> so, so it's finding that fine line isn't it.
0: Tell me about your relationship with music when you were growing up Danielle what, what are your early memories of listening to music at home?
1: I mean both my parents are pretty kind of artistic in a way my mom was trained to be a ballerina and my dad was uh, an Elvis impersonator for a short while, which is pretty cool. And uh...
0: whoa, back up! <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, is that pretty cool, or is that the most embarrassing dad in school?
1: Well, it was a bit different. He wasn't around actually at that point, so he never was around for the school years. So I didn't have to kind of you know traverse that line. It was only sort of when I was older I met him and found out a bit about him and found the coasters. Remember, you used to get photographs. Got on coasters in the seventies, I've got I've got coasters of him in like the gold lame suit. Which looking back, I now think is great, you know. So yeah, he did that on the cruise ships for a little while, which I think is just brilliant. Why life's short, right? It thunders by. <laughs> Why not? So yeah, he wasn't around, but he was very very musical, and he worked within sort of music and show business, as they say in the states. My whole life, but my mum was kind of more trad. um I remember listening to Fleetwood Mac and Rumours in her Fiat Panda, the mustard yellow seats and pretty safe, really. And then I just really got into Motown. And uh, I really liked Michael Jackson growing up. That was my first gig. I went to at Wembley when I was like 13. And then it was massive attack. I've still got all the ticket stubs. And that was the first time I heard like sub bass and it blew my mind. And I was like, my God. And then the 90s was just, you know, just kept giving, didn't it? The levelers (laughs) into like massive attack. I don't know. It it just kind of grew from there, really.
0: You went to college in Bournemouth and then you went to uni in Southampton. Were you part of... um any kind of scene or scenes?
1: I think so, a little bit. Bournemouth um, was never really my bag, really. You had to wear smart shoes everywhere and they had fish tanks in every bar. So it was a bit um, weird, Bournemouth. But Southampton, I stayed in for a while and I was there when delays were, well, I lived with the genre of delays. They're good friends of mine. So we did that and they used to come on my local radio show a lot. And then Band of Skulls, who were called Flea New York back in the days. And there was bands called Thomas Tantrum and Dead, Dead, Dead. And it was a really exciting scene actually. And it's when CSS were touring, I remember, and Claxons did their first run and the cookess debut. It was kind of right around about that time. And Southampton felt very exciting. Um, it's quite a strange city. It doesn't offer that much, but the people are great. Yeah. And I didn't leave for a long time because I was just having such a laugh and it was so good. And I don't know, the music was exciting. It did feel vibrant, actually. It felt like something was happening.
0: What course for you?
1: I did the music degree, but I'm, I majored in um, orchestration, so writing for orchestras. Which I loved. I used to just sit there, such an idiot. I used to sit there with like a lamp and a you know (laughs) big manuscript, this big romantic, and write string sections until four in the morning. Yeah, did that, and then I wrote my dissertation on Bjork. So I was like concentrating on visuals and music, and that film came out, Dancer in the Dark. It was a Lars von Trier film with Bjork. Tom York was in it, and Catherine Deneuve. And it's pretty dark. It's pretty harrowing. Watch.
0: Is your Bjork thesis available anywhere?
1: I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm at my mum's. She's probably got it somewhere. Yeah, I just think she's amazing, Bjork. I, I've interviewed her twice. Have you interviewed her?
0: Yes, once, but it was brief, just before she was about to go on stage somewhere. So she was very charming. I've, I'm fascinated by her because I don't think there's been anyone like her since. And that's quite remarkable. All these years later, you very rarely hear anyone say that, Oh, well, it's kind of Bjorky. I know, right? You don't hear that very often,
1: not at all. And if you think that she landed right in the middle of Britpop with that yeah. cover of "It's So Quiet," you know, it's like what? You know, it's pretty bonkers. And she still penetrated the market and all over the world. They're amazing, really.
0: I uh, went to see her, I guess, when debut just came out in, in Sheffield, and it was weird because it was only about half full, and uh, she came on and um, the support act played for longer. She she did about twenty, twenty-five minutes and I was like, what, it's <laughs>
1: Bizarre. First time I interviewed her was in Little Venice and it's just when she, do you remember she, her hair went red? And uh, I went to interview her and again, no producer, so I was on my own with all the equipment. And um, I had no idea, I had in my mind that she was still going to look like she did for post and debut and stuff. And she opened the door and she was wearing a full kimono, bright red afro. And I was like, oh my God. And we went in and she poured me tea and I just completely lost my mind because I knew too much about her. This this is my thing about over prepping. I knew too much. And so I couldn't genuinely ask questions because my mind was just everywhere. Her presence is quite awesome. I don't use that word very much. It was like, my God, I feel like I'm in some greatness here. You know, she's amazing.
0: Did she make good tea?
1: I think it was some kind of Earl Grey blend of some description. No, it was good. Yeah.
0: So you were in bands, weren't you? I'm guessing you still play.
1: I do. Well, I play for my husband now. Uh, we toured quite a lot. Um, I've only been in two bands. I lacked the confidence, I think. I could play. I did all my grades. I ran a music school for Yamaha when I was at uni and you know, all the classical stuff was cool. I could do that. But I, I used to just sit and watch artists and bands and just think, how do you write? How do you let go of that? How do you not get confined by that theory and all the rules? I could never break through from that. So that's why I decided I'd become a radio presenter to celebrate those who could, because I never thought I could. I didn't have the ball to get up on stage either. Not up front, anyway.
0: But what about DJing out? When was the first time you did that?
1: So DJing out, the first time I did that really was when I got to Birmingham, when I got that gig at Kerrang! And I, I'd never DJed before. Never. Not once. And I was like, I think I'm going to have to just give this a go. I'm going to have to start DJing and do it. So I got in touch with all these clubs and stuff in Birmingham and Coventry and all around it. And I said, oh, I've DJed loads of Kerrang! parties and VIPs and just blagged it a little bit. and I got a gig. I got a residency off the back of that. And I had to pay the work experience kids at Kerrang to come and show me how to set it up because I literally <laughs> yeah. had no idea. And he had to show me how to do it for the first half an hour. And he was like, press that one. Okay, do that one. Okay, that one does that one. I was like, oh, cool. Um, and just learn on the job, really. Um, it's something I haven't done enough of.
0: So the club night then, Miss Perry Presents, you did that, still do that, we will do it again?
1: That again was in Birmingham. Birmingham was like this chapter mark. I knew nobody and I come from Southampton. that had that scene where I knew everybody. I was like, oh my God, I've got no mates. I don't know what to do. So I had one friend, but she used to take me to lots of um, reggae nights, a huge dub and reggae scene in Birmingham, um, which was cool and I loved it. But I was like, this isn't my tribe. This isn't what I've come from. And there was no one really doing it. So I thought I'll just start a club night. I had no idea what I was doing. And I just booked a few bands and just kind of worked it out a little bit. And I struck really lucky. So I think I booked Pulled Apart by Horses, who was actually he was the drummer from which was one of my old mates from Southampton, my housemate. So I booked them and they were just, you know, doing really, really well. Then I booked Band of Skulls. There's a pattern here, isn't there, who I knew um, from Southampton. And then I booked Anna Calvi. I just thought she was amazing. Um, and weirdly, we were on the same music degree course, but we didn't know that at the time. When I booked her, it's when her she was on the front page of the Guardian and stuff and all the tickets sold out and Darwin D's came to play on First Aid Kit. And suddenly like promoters were calling me because we we're in Birmingham. It was just a nice routing for the bands to stop. And I'd always let them kip at my house and I'd make dinner for everyone in the pub kitchen. And it was really good times. I loved it.
0: Uh, that's uh- some great names.
1: Yeah, it was good. I think I did well on the first few bookings. And then I think because the bands liked it because they didn't have to pay for a hotel. It was sold out. The Heron Hounds in Kings Heath is a wicked venue. I don't know if you've been there, but it's really good. The sound is important and good. Um, and they got a hot meal when they got there and they didn't have to spend it. You know, it was just, I don't know. I think it may be that personal touch. I did The Door because I wanted to meet everyone that was coming. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think they just quite like the vibe. And then, yeah, like I said, it just sort of rolled again. I'm getting
0: a sense, Danielle, that um, all of the groundwork, if you like, that you did in your younger years, you're doing now the real result of all of that work.
1: Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I am i can't sit still. I think I'm probably a nightmare to be married to, but the mind's always ticking. Do you get like that? I don't know if it's the industry that we work in, Like, what do I need to do next?
0: Well, yes, to a point, and it kind of breeds anxiety, doesn't it? I think, you know, you can do something that you're really proud of, but um, I don't think you can ever be complacent, and maybe that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, it does keep you on your toes, but don't you sit there sometimes and think, oh, God, I don't want to do TikTok, you know? Do you (laughs) think that? Are you on TikTok?
0: My daughter is all the time, but, yeah, no, it's encouraged, isn't it, to to stay relevant. Um, Maybe you made me think that I should be... (laughs) Time for the first now of your five picks from 45 in this record box in front of me. All the questions here are on 45 sleeves and I'll dip in and you just say when. Okay, and I'll pull one out.
1: Okay, when?
0: Why do you love DJing?
1: I think it's really important for music fans to be behind the mic. I think it's essential because you really care about not missing stuff. There are so many careers that can be made or broken by a record being missed. I'm sure your inbox is busier than mine, Chris, but like the amount that comes in, you just like, oh my God, I can't miss anything. And it's almost impossible. Well, it kind of is impossible, isn't it, to listen to every single thing, but you just try and try and try. So I think it's important for music lovers to be behind the mic um, because, I don't know, you can bring music alive. You can explain stuff to people. You can textualize it to an audience that might not get it. And that's why I like it. I like sort of caring for it and giving it a safe place.
0: What do you think is important, Daniela? Do you care as much about what you say as what you play?
1: Yeah, I do. Because, I mean, the broadness of audience you're speaking to and people do really feel like they know you, don't they? So it's a very personal thing. I think one of my downfalls as a DJ is sometimes I don't give enough away that maybe I should be a bit more open about my family life or my life outside the radio. But I've always been just a, a music DJ. So I've, I find that a difficult bridge to cross because I'm like, I don't know if they care about my cat. Like, Who cares? It's like Instagram. like, Does anyone care? <laughs> I don't know. I find that that tricky.
0: I, um, I had that uh, conversation with Christian O'Connell. Um, he, he talked about how long mm. it took him to be able to open up. And, and when he did finally get to a point where he felt comfortable talking more about himself, his family and his life, That was when he really started enjoying radio the most.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay.
0: But he did say, as you just have, how hard it is, particularly doing music shows, to weave life into a conversation you know
1: yeah I do I find it a very tricky balance and then when you go off and you do a different show perhaps it's more content led or sort of more tongue-in-cheek it's a shift isn't it but I, I enjoy the shift definitely so but yeah that's the work in progress I think for me
0: I think in some ways it's endearing to be so modest as to think that why would anyone care about my cat but actually if you think of yourself as a listener then it's Probably what you remember most from any show is when the person that you're listening to has talked a bit about their real life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's the same with social media. As soon as you let people in, they love it, you know, because they want to see, not the press shot, they want to see what your kitchen looks like. So, yeah, that that's a guard I've got to drop. I'll work on it. Watch this space.
0: Back into the box, Danielle, for your second question. Just say when. When. Question two here. Is there one person you would say is responsible for you being a DJ?
1: ah hmm oh this is quite a weird answer (laughs) i'm gonna go with it though the thing that made me want to do it really was when i watched that film good morning vietnam when i was younger and i watched robin williams (laughs) on that film and i was like that's amazing that is and i love the soundtrack from that film that's the thing that sparked my idea of maybe doing it to begin with and then of course i started listening more intently and um to be honest, like probably, I remember clearly when I was younger. Someone who's proven to be my nemesis—I mean that in a really, really nice way—is Joe Wiley. <laughs> so many people um, that I've gone for jobs before have said, "I'm really sorry, but you just sound too much like Joe Wiley, and everything you do with the bands is just so like Joe Wiley when she was on Radio One." I'm like, okay
0: how much of a compliment is that
1: though oh yeah i mean i used to listen to her a lot when i was i mean that mid-morning show she did on radio one was huge wasn't it it was massive so i remember listening to that and of course john Peel, and then one of the nicest guys i've ever worked with in radio who i know has been on your podcast because i listened to it is john kennedy and whenever you go through dips and maybe think i don't know if i can do this anymore when i worked with john with jk he just almost like recharged my batteries and I just thought, oh my God, he's just a real duo. I love him so much. So,
0: yeah, that, that passion yeah. is unbelievable. Isn't it? And infectious.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I would pass over to him every night on XFM, and his ability to remember everybody's name baffles me. All the bands that he's seen over the years, they'll come in and he'll remember. <laughs> I don't mean this to any offence to bassists or <laughs> but he would remember every single name of the band straight off the bat yeah. unbelievable
0: when we did the podcast just before we started the recording he said uh, Chris it's great to do this um, of course we haven't seen each other since we were put on the same bill on the 17th of June
1: 2002 at King's Hall in Stoke On Track I'm like why <laughs> what oh yeah oh man I know it's amazing and he used to like walk in with this huge bag of CDs every night and he only went onto his laptop not so long ago and then everything just froze one night on the studio I said oh shall I just chuck you the first CD on top of your bag he went no 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 I want that particular record to start the show it was dead air he was just talking to dead air and he had the time because he wanted to start the show with a specific record and he wasn't going to just put anything on and I was like oh my (laughs) god he is the real you know I just so it's people it's not one person particularly but it's people as I've been growing through it I think that I've just watched and learnt from and been inspired by. Yeah. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. That's what I love about music, that transportative power. Yeah, my mind just flicks. So I asked to speak to him and I said, Do you think I could put myself forward for that cover? And he said, You know, the problem with you is that when you walk into a room, no one turns round.
0: All right, Danielle, back into the box for your third question now. And you just say when?
1: All right. When?
0: How much do you prep?
1: Oh, talk about revealing, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't prep at all, um, which is probably a very unprofessional answer. Uh, And the reason being is that when I'm interviewing, I mean, I have a little bit, I have listened to the record before I interview somebody or, you know, and I've got my own opinion on it and I've listened to it, but I don't ever have notes when I'm doing interviews or anything like that. I never want things to be stilted. So I just like having a really genuine conversation with whoever I'm chatting to. And prep-wise, I used to prep more, but I always found when I prepped too much, it didn't flow and I didn't have a a genuine reaction. So I don't prep. I don't over-prep at all.
0: What for Absolute then? If you don't mind giving us a glimpse behind the velvet curtain, tell me about going in to do a show on Absolute.
1: So, yeah, um, I've never in my life had a producer. So... A lot of it, I suppose a lot of the prep is kind of done beforehand. So if I did interviews, I'd always do that before the show. I'd edit them myself. I'd upload them onto the server, whatever. And so I was kind of in the mindset already, because you're all encompassed, you don't have a producer. You have a kind of plan, I suppose, in your head of what you're going to do. So absolutely, you get your log. I do have a playlist for the evening show. I'm very instrumental on the Sunday one, specialist one, where I have quite a few free plays and I can do that, which is a joy. And I'm really grateful for that. In commercial, it's just you've got your format so easily there because you've always got to tease across the break. There's also always commercial messaging. You've got to weave into it somehow. So by the time you've done that and live reads and music passion woven in, your links are pretty full. Yeah. Does that answer that? Yes, it
0: does. And it is a good glimpse behind that velvet curtain because you're absolutely right. The BBC thing and the commercial thing are two very different ways of delivering radio, neither necessarily better than the other, but you're right. I tend to talk Every one or two, maybe in any given hour, there'll be three in a row. But uh, otherwise, there's quite a lot of talk around the music because there's a lot of new music too, that the context is required. And the music is often less familiar than it might be, say, on a commercial pop station.
1: Absolutely. I've noticed that when I've done a bit of BBC stuff recently. And it's been a real kind of change of pace and tone around that, you know, how I deliver that and how I... Position—it's it's like positioning yourself, isn't it? In the hour, and where you're going to go next, and shaping it. But that's been nice. I, I like—I don't like resting on my laurels. I like having a bit of a challenge. So that's been good practice to do that.
0: Back into the box. Uh, you're on to question four now.
1: All right. When?
0: Okay. If you weren't a DJ, what would you be?
1: Um, I'm a Gemini. I'm a nightmare. And there's a million and one things I want to do. This is why I'm in constant flux. And when people like JK and stuff like anchor me and go, no, this is cool. You're doing great. You know, keep going with radio. I managed my husband for a while and I managed another band I was in.
0: Sorry, Danielle, forgive my ignorance. You mentioned your husband earlier. Should I know him?
1: Uh, He's called John J. Presley. He started out more as a bluesman, but now it's much more alternative now, I suppose. He's a great guitarist. I'm not going to sell him too much, but he's he's a phenomenal talent. And that's where we met because he was uh, supporting Dan Sartain at one of my club nights. Yeah, so I I managed him for eight years and I managed another band and I loved that. And I nearly joined a music management company a few years ago because I've always wanted to manage bands because I love the idea of visuals with music video and touring and live. And when I was managing, I would fly out to Switzerland and meet promoters. And I just find it so exciting, you know, sort of shaping someone's career and really grabbing opportunity and seeing opportunity and going for it and getting it. It's, It's hard. Being a manager is really, really hard. But the results, you know, it's like when you maybe a band you've supported or whatever, and you're standing side stage, you're seeing them play the most amazing show to a crowd loving it. You think, oh my god, it's so good, magic. So I probably would have done that. I think Um, loads of travel, and uh, I love meeting people. The one thing that I wish radio had more of was not being sat in one room. But yeah, you know, that's it. Probably
0: good answer. You'll find a one for the box now. Okay. Question five. Just say when.
1: When. It's quite nerve-wracking being interviewed when it's the other way around, isn't it? I'm like, God.
0: I'm going to ask you about your cat in a bit. Can you name two songs you love playing back to back?
1: Yes. When I do play out live, I start with David Bowie's Let's Dance. There is something so wonderful about that through a massive PA speaker. It's almost quite eerie, but it's got such a groove to it. And it's kind of, I think it kind of sums up a little bit through the lyrics of maybe the music that IDJ, which is a bit more alternative. I, I, I don't really do anything electronic or anything. It's it's not what I do. So I think that's kind of quite a good starter. And then I, I just think Tom Waits' Chicago is just unreal. I think he's just like the king of like rock and roll cabaret just takes me to a place. I'm in America. I'm just there. So maybe those two tracks back to back.
0: I am kind of trying to figure out what kind of night that would be. From Bowie into Tom Waits.
1: This is why I don't DJ so much because that's a kind of atmosphere setting thing. So when I have done stuff, it's been sort of late night bars and the VIP tent at Reading and Leeds and stuff like that. And I just try and not play the obvious stuff. And sometimes it goes down really well and other times maybe not people are expecting.
0: Do you think that the reason that you didn't go further with becoming a professional musician as such is that you're not necessarily that comfortable, and I mean this as a huge compliment, with being front and centre in a weird way for someone who presents national radio shows?
1: Absolutely, and also because, and the writing aspect of it, like I was saying earlier, like the letting go and being able to write and not, it sound too trad and obvious. Whenever I try to write, it just sounded like a really bad like Sixpence None the Richer song or something, you know, and I was like, this is, come on, this is not what I'm trying to do here.
0: How many times have you played that song through the years?
1: I can't talk about it. Um, yeah, so yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I'm really happy on stage being on the stage. I never want to steal someone's limelight if it's not my work, you know, I'm, I'm really happy just supporting in that instance.
0: I have a thing where, you know, if you're interviewing someone, I always think that if you've invited them to be interviewed, then the focus should very much be on them.
1: I agree. And also, someone said something to me once, a PD in Southampton, who's an absolute, one of the worst that I've come across. And there was a slot going for mid-mornings, just a maternity cover. And I'd been at the station quite a long time. So I asked to speak to him and I said, do you think I could put myself forward for that cover? Because I've been here for a while, you know, I know the station, know how it works and getting some quite nice feedback from the listeners. And he said, you know, the problem with you is that when you walk into a room, no one turns around and no one notices you. Oh, wow. Oh, and, and that really hurt because there were a few people in local radio and regional radio coming up that really did do that. And I didn't always like that ego. And so I think maybe that might be a reason why I kind of thought, I don't ever want to be that person.
0: Imagine a boss saying that
1: now. I know, right? That walks into a room and goes, I'm here, everyone, listen to me now, you know?
0: Unbelievable. There was a time, you know, there was a lot of bad stuff in, in radio that um, and people. That we're on massive power trips and in it for all the wrong reasons. And you know what? I'm glad those days are, are so far behind us. But oh, yeah, it still makes me angry oh. because people's lives have been affected by those people.
1: I know. And even now, it echoes through my head sometimes. And I can't quite work out where I stand with it. But I just thought it was a really, oh, still so mad.
0: All right. They were your questions from the box, Danielle. I've got a handful of quick fires here for you if you're up for them.
1: Yeah, yeah. Go for it.
0: Right right, first, what is the name of your cat?
1: Holly. Yeah. Kind
0: of cat? It's
1: like a tabby, tabby cat.
0: Uh-huh. Just trying to get to know you a bit better, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Help you with the sharing thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it's working. I'm feeling better already.
0: <laughs> How are the kids?
1: They're really good, thank you, yeah. I just really love hanging with them. I find them really funny. I'm really lucky with my lot. Do you still write music? Yeah, I write. My husband obviously plays all the time and we've got it all set up at home in a little studio and stuff, so... Oh, I mean, painting a picture like, I don't know, some family band. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it was a little bit like that in lockdown, to be fair, with Etta on the little keyboard and stuff. But I do write a little bit. There's one of the tracks I wrote, got on his last album. Uh, it's an instrumental piece. I said actually at the start of lockdown that I might do an album. I've got to do one, maybe just a, a piano, set of piano pieces or something. It's kind of chilled, like sort of neoclassical stuff, you know, that I do. But um, yeah, I should do it. Is
0: that kind of... Anna Kelvey world stuff.
1: Um, More kind of like sort of Max Richter piano stuff. Maybe a little bit like Nick Cave and Warren Ellis do that instrumental soundtracky kind of stuff.
0: For the sake of um, the Spotify playlist, which will go with this podcast, Daniel, what's the instrumental called on your other half's album?
1: So the instrumental is called Cold Water and it was played on a Fender Rhodes.
0: Yeah. Okay, one last quickfire question here for you. Um, complete this sentence, I wish I'd never.
1: So, I wish I'd never ignored my dad's advice to DJ <laughs> in terms of playing out more. I remember him, because he lived in America for my whole life, and I remember him saying, why don't you actually like travel and do DJ? And I was like, no, 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 Radio radio's a thing. But I think if I had I've listened to him there, it would have widened the kind of palette a bit. And, you know, people say, oh, it's never too late. It feels a bit too late with two children you know, a young children that I need to be at home for. Never say never, but I'm I'm not sure how much, you know, like if I was 50, I don't know how well that would fit in as a look. I don't know, but maybe that boat's passed, but that's cool.
0: I don't think there'll uh, ever be a better answer on this podcast. To the question, I wish I'd never ignored my Elvis impersonated dad's (laughs) advice.
1: I know, I know. And actually, my married name is Presley. So, um, yeah, it went full circle. So that was nice. I've been trying to change my name on air for years because it's a cooler name.
0: It's your real name, Danielle Perry.
1: Yeah. And then it's now Danielle Presley. But yeah, do I change it? Do I not change it? It sounds quite similar. So it's almost more confusing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and I'm trying really hard here to resist. Agreeing with you but going, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. Finally, Danielle, it's the end of the world and you have to play the last three records on earth. What would they be?
1: Well, this just probably sums up probably why I'm not in clubs, isn't it? But music that kind of stops me in my tracks. One of them, my favourite male vocal, I think, ever is Richard Hawley. I just melt at the sound of Richard Hawley. There is something about that. I can listen to it on the tube. I listen to it in the blazing sunshine and it just transports me immediately. So Cole's Corner from Richard Hawley into a Bjork track, probably something off Homogenic. Let's go with Isabel. Nice. Um, And then it would have to be something just off Miles Davis, A Kind of Blue, which is so, so cliche. But that album is a masterpiece for a reason. and maybe the opening track. I just, I know that's that's the record that I always go to maybe on a Saturday morning, making, it's my favourite time of the week, Saturday morning, making a big pot of coffee and uh, just putting some actual records on and just kind of watching the kids play and just soaking it all in. That's what I love about music, that transportative power. Yeah, my mind just flicks like, I don't know, when, when I was back in New Orleans three few years ago or in Paris. I, I, it just... There's something about those three records and it would, sl- I don't know, I think it would relax everyone, the end of the world.
0: Be kind of a pensive, reflective end. Slip away quietly.
1: Well, Yeah, I, I wasn't sure whether you wanted something like, you know, Go Out All Guns Blazing, but that wouldn't really be my style. I'm just quite happy in like a really nice Chesterfield chair and massive glass of wine <laughs> and just listening to yeah, listening to the record. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, probably if it's the last day, I'll have a fag as well, you know, whatever, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I
0: can just see sticking that last one on and just... Um modestly walking away
1: yeah it's like into the sea or something I don't know but yeah maybe those three it's it's a tough tough call that one
0: I think they're three great choices Danielle it's been a real pleasure thank you so much Danielle Perry thank you
1: thanks so much
0: and that was How To DJ Thanks for listening please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcasts from